This is HEC Media. The views and opinions expressed in the following program do not reflect the views or opinions of HEC or this station. Today we have weddings celebrated and weddings not celebrated. We have plans that work and plans that don't work. Hi, I'm Jerry Kowarski. And I'm Bob Wilcox. Come with us to the theater and we'll tell you what we've seen from our two seats on the aisle. Welcome to Two on the Aisle, the podcast, produced by HEC Media in St. Louis, Missouri. Two on the Aisle, the podcast, is an audio version of the televised and webcast program produced every two weeks that features a review of theater and opera productions around the St. Louis area, along with a calendar of theater due to play around the region. The regular hosts of the program, Bob Wilcox and Jerry Kowarski, have been hosting and reviewing all over town for more than 25 years on local cable and more recently on the internet. This podcast is from episode number 529 of the program, originally broadcast on Thursday, June 6, 2019, and features reviews of the following plays. Love's Labor's Lost at the Shakespeare Festival St. Louis, Be More Chill at New Lion Theater, Rigoletto at Opera Theater of St. Louis, and The Marriage of Figaro also at Opera Theater of St. Louis. Charlie Johnson reads All of Proust at The Midnight Company, and Earworm by Charlie Cook, Dates by Elizabeth Breed Penny, and Hoist by Aaron Lane at Tesseract Theatre Company. Now to start our reviews for this episode, here's Jerry Kowarski. Before I retired from a large corporation, I took part in a communications class in which we were told that less than 10% of personal communication is in the words we use. The rest is nonverbal, that is, body language and tone of voice. I was reminded of this class while I was watching Love's Labor's Lost in Forest Park, You should not pass up the delightful staging by Shakespeare Festival St. Louis because opportunities to see this play do not come along very often. It's set in the royal court of Navarre where the king and three of his courtiers have pledged to forego worldly pleasures, including women, and dedicate the next three years to study. The resolve is immediately tested when the princess of France arrives with three of her courtiers She has diplomatic business to conduct about payment for the Aquitaine. In spite of their pledge, the young men are attracted to the young women and vice versa. The expressions of love and the humor in the play are a feast of language, not all of which is current anymore. That's one reason why Love's Labor's Lost is rarely performed. This difficulty did not scare off Tom Ridgely, the new executive producer of Shakespeare Festival St. Louis, The key to his production's success is its nonverbal acting. Everyone in the cast consistently uses highly communicative gestures and inflections to make the import of the dialogue apparent, even when some of the words and references are unfamiliar. The comic characters are a rich source of humor in the performances by Patrick Blindauer as Costard, Philip Hernandez as Armado, Carl Howe as Dull, Katie Keating as Nathaniel, Molly Meyer as Jacanetta, Corrine Montbertrand as Holofernes, and Naima Randolph as Moth. The nobility and comedy of the highborn characters comes across in the work of Jeffrey Cummings as Boyette, Sam Jones as Longueville, Vivian Claire Luthan as Maria, Kia McKernan as Catherine, Riz Moe as Dumaine, Sky Smith as the King, Laura Sohn as Rosalyn, Bradley James Tejada as Birone, and Kia Trevitt as the princess. Jason Sims' imposing scenic design 
and Melissa Turns' attractive costumes do not fix the production in a specific time period. The resulting flexibility is exploited in the eclectic incidental music by the Rats and People Motion Picture Orchestra. The music is a great benefit to the production, as are John Wiley's lighting, Rusty Wandel's sound, Suzanne Mills' voice and text coaching, Lara Teeter's choreography, Loris Graska's props, and Eric Kuhn's fight direction. Michael James Reed's entrance as Markety is a spectacular segue to the disappointment foretold in the play's title. Though the comedy is at an end, the cast continues to command attention. The success of this production makes me eager to see more of Tom Ridgely's work. Yeah, me too. And that, that playwright is pretty good too, that he did. Even in a play that some people think is minor. Yeah, but he really made it work well. And I, I was impressed. We were, Someone sitting behind us uh, during the first act kept laughing at the Latin that was used <laughs> in it, which impressed me very much. When I turned around, it turned out to be somebody we knew, and he said he'd had about six years of Latin in high school. So uh, all kinds of people can benefit from this show. Is Be More Chill the future of musical theater? Is it the hair or rent or spring awakening for the millennial generation? One might think so, listening to the whooping and hollering from a large part of the opening night audience at New Line Theater's production. The musical has had a curious history. Joe Iconis, the songwriter, and Joe Trash, the book writer, adapted it from Ned Vizzini's popular young adult novel. It premiered at the Two River Theater in Red Bank, New Jersey in 2015 with only passing interest from reviewers and none from Broadway investors. But the cast made a recording of the score. The recording found its way onto the internet with lip-sync performances and storyboard art on YouTube. By the time it had been streamed more than 150 million times, the investors had noticed and opened it off-Broadway a year ago. More success and a Broadway opening four months ago, where it continues to run, with talk of a movie to come. Is Be More Chill the future of musical theater? No, it can't be, because it's so much like the past of musical theater. Hair and Rent and Spring Awakening captured something of the uniqueness of their generations, both in their books and in their scores. Be More Chill recycles the old story of the high school nerd who longs to be one of the cool kids. The contemporary touch is the device by which Jeremy, an appealing Jade Mitchell, makes the leap. Evan Fornishon's ex-nerd Rich, now cool bully, takes pity on him and tells him about the pill he took. Only it's not a pill. It's a super quantum unit Intel processor, or SQUIP, a computer just the size of the pill. Jeremy swallows it, washed down as instructed with green mountain dew, which is how that soft drink becomes the deus ex soda machina that <laughs> resolves the plot. The squip assumes a physical shape in Jeremy's mind, looking very much like Lawrence Fishburne in The Matrix, as played masterfully at New Line by Dominic Dowdy Windsor. The squip now controls Jeremy, giving him the popularity and the girlfriends he's longed for, especially the drama enthusiast Christine in a lively performance by Grace Langford. But Jeremy dumps his old nerd body Michael 
a lovely performance by Kevin Corpus, who gets the best song in the show, Michael in the Bathroom. Ever loyal, Michael tries to warn Jeremy of the dangers of the squip. He's right. The squip has enough squips for every student in the school. Like the plant Audrey II in The Little Shop of Horrors, the squip has plans to take over the world. Along the way, music director Nicholas Valdez, conductor Mark Vincent, and the New Line Band drive some energy for the choreography by Michelle Sauer and Sarah Ray Womack. Large screens covered with etched computer chips back set and lighting designer Rob Lippert's flexible set pieces, rearranged briskly by stage manager Aaron Goodenough, props master Kimmy Short, and their crews. Sarah Porter's costumes make smart character distinctions. Ryan Day designed sound. Smart character distinctions are made by Isabel Cecilia Garcia, Melissa Phelps, Laura Renfro, and Ian McCrary as the popular crowd. Zachary Allen Farmer does a hat trick as Jeremy's depressed father, the school drama teacher, and a shoe store clerk who sells Jeremy the squip. All are in good voice and, directed by Mike Doughty Windsor and Scott Miller, have good acting chops. Millennials seem to be finding what they want in Be More Chill, and maybe some boomers and XYZers too if not the old silent generation. <laughs> well, I welcome any show that uh, is bringing young people into the theater. I thought um, Dominic Dottie Windsor was fabulous, and I really think the rights holders did a wonderful thing by not shutting this show down, even though they're running on Broadway. Even though they're on Broadway. And I, I was not terribly impressed with the score, but I think we should hear some of it. The overture tells you everything you need to know about what will follow in the marriage of Figaro at Opera Theatre of St. Louis, thanks not only to Mozart's brilliant music, but also to Opera Theatre's marvelous production. The opening notes scamper along at a bracing but not a breakneck speed. Conductor harpsichordist Christopher Allen judges the pacing beautifully here and throughout, always drawing gorgeous playing from the St. Louis Symphony. Stage director Mark Lamos brings the characters on stage during the overture. Editions of this sort are sometimes intrusive, but Lamos's are clever and effective. The audience gets to know the characters and their relationships as they act out events that take place prior to the opening curtain. The invention suggests that Lamos' top priorities are making the action clear and bringing out the comedy. The splendid direction serves the audience throughout aficionados and novices alike. The same is true for Sean Coran's choreography. The action during the overture also introduces the costumes by Constance Hoffman and the set by Paul Steinberg. The costumes are a delightful mix of traditional and fanciful elements. The same can be said of Tom Watson's wigs and makeup. The style of the painted scenery enhances the buoyancy of the production and the easily reconfigured set pieces allow for speedy scene changes after Acts 1 and 3. The props crew under Nicole Angeli did yeoman service in filling the cabinets with clutter in Act 1. 
The only important thing the overture does not alert you to in this production is the quality of the singing. Happily, it ascends to the same peak level as the rest, both musically and dramatically. The performers are Aubrey Alacacus Figaro, Monica Dewey as Susanna, Thea Hoffman as the Count, Susanna Biller as Rosina, Samantha Gossard as Carabino, Nathan Stark as Bartolo, Marianne McCormick as Marcellina, John McVeigh as Basilio, Elena Villalone as Barbarina, Calvert Young as Curzio, Philip Lopez as Antonio, and the chorus under Carrie John Franklin. The laughter at the right spots and other appropriate audience responses speak well for the work of English diction specialist Ben Malinsek and fight director and intimacy coach Michael Rossmi. I'm glad that I already have my tickets for this Saturday matinee. Oh, so you're going to have to sit through this again, are you? I am going to have to enjoy it again. <laughs> well, I enjoyed it very much, too, and I always enjoy listening to Mozart's music, which I think we should do now. You can follow all things Two on the Isle on Facebook by searching for Two on the Isle and liking the page. And you can be the first to see reviews on YouTube by subscribing to the Two on the Isle channel and checking the notification bell. Again, you can find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching for Two on the Isle. For the current production of Rigoletto at Opera Theatre of St. Louis, stage director Bruno Ravella has relocated the action from Renaissance Italy to Paris in the 1880s, the last decade of the life of Victor Hugo, on whose play the opera is based. The first scene takes place not in the grand salon of the Duke's palace, but in a seedy club where the Duke entertains his clique. Mark Bowman's costumes fit this setting, which allows the Duke's true nature to show through with clarity. In the original setting, the title character is a court jester whose job is to entertain the Duke by mocking everyone else, especially victims of the Duke's licentiousness. Ravello's Rigoletto is also an entertainer, a ventriloquist who is a hanger-on in the Duke's coterie. The mockery comes from the dummy's mouth, but Rigoletto still gets the blame. This reimagining of Rigoletto's function works very well in the chosen time period. I'm less persuaded by the decision to make Rigoletto's infirmity a facial disfiguration rather than the original hunchback, which would have had more impact under Christopher Ackland's appropriately gloomy lighting. Roland Wood sings and acts superbly in the title role. So Young Park as Gilda and Joshua Weaker as the Duke create believable characters and nail their great arias. It was a masterstroke to have Gilda come down from the Duke's room in the same robe the Duke was wearing at the start of the scene. Lindsay Ammon as Madalena joins Wood, Park, and Weaker as the fourth member of the group that makes the great final act quartet a thrilling ensemble. Christian Zaremba is an appropriately menacing figure as the hired assassin's Spara Fuchila. The set by Alex Eels featured four columns supporting three arches. A platform in front of the central arch can be the stage for a risque show, part of Rigoletto's home, or room in an inn. 
The flexibility of this set allows for very efficient scene changes. Conductor Roberto Kalb, choreographer Sean Coran, the chorus under Carrie John Franklin, the St. Louis Symphony, and the entire ensemble all help make this Rigoletto an event that deserves to be seen, heard, and remembered. Well, Rigoletto is one of those, I, I think Verdi's music is great. The story has so many things in it that make can make opera seem ridiculous to those of us who have trouble suspending our disbelief, including the, the soprano's final aria as she's dying. But uh, let's listen to Verdi's music. Joe Hanrahan can do any kind of theater, but he does seem especially fond of the one-person play. He's at it again now at the Kranzberg, but it's not a play, it's a monologue. One-person scripts often tend that way, though they usually find a clever way to generate some dramatic excitement. Charlie Johnson reads all of Proust, has little of that. Charming and literate as it is, it doesn't need it. Nor does Hanrahan's charming and literate performance. His performance of necessity all have something of Joe Hanrahan in them, but it seems to me that he is developing more rounded, individual, and deeper characters with each venture. Not that Charlie Johnson is anything much more than a 75-year-old small-town Midwesterner, but as playwright Amy Kreider makes clear, such a person has more than enough to them to hold our attention for an evening. When Charlie dips a cookie in his coffee at Starbucks, his superior daughter-in-law asks him if he's having a Madeline moment. He has no idea if he is or not, so she condescends to enlighten him with a little lecture on Proust. Unwilling to be thought a dummy, he resolves to read all of Proust. He has second thoughts when he discovers that Proust is not one novel, but seven. He's determined to plow through them, fixing himself tea in a madeleine as he begins. He's caught by the stories, and he begins to reflect on his own remembrances of things past. He finds no madeleines there, but the cornmeal mush of his childhood will serve as well. He makes it through all seven, and shares much of his own life with us. When he reports to the daughter-in-law that he has read all seven, she has to confess she has only finished one. He gets closer to his estranged daughter, and he decides to read all seven again. Sarah Lynn Holt directed Hanrahan in this richly expressive performance. Chuck Winning designed the spare homey set. Tony Anselmo the lights. Linda Menard is the efficient stage manager. It's a very pleasant evening with Charlie Johnson and Proust. Yes, it is. It's common to say that a work of art speaks to us, Shirley Cook takes this personification literally in her new play, Earworm, which had its premiere in Tesseract Theatre Company's 2019 Festival of New Plays. The title character is a song that becomes an earworm. In the performance we saw, Cook herself played the song. You can't see it, but in my script, I capitalize the song because it's a proper name. The song is the narrator and has a special relationship with every other character. Sasha composed the song 13 years before the start of the play in the wake of a bad high school breakup. She shared the song with her one true friend, Jory, whose contributions helped bring the song to maturity. Three years later, the song began getting airplay and eventually made Sasha and Jory rock stars. 
when we first meet Kess and Elise, the song is playing in their cars. Kess is singing along. The song tells us what a rush it is to be sung along to. Kess is a hip music journalist who established herself by writing about Sasha, Jory, and the song. Kess is on her way to meet Elise, who is the sister of Trevor, Kess's new boyfriend. Trevor hears the song while browsing in a record store. The song brings up bad memories in him. I admire the way Cook has thought through the implications of making the song sentient and how vividly Cook has fleshed out the personification both as an author and as a performer. I especially like the fact that the relationship between the song and the world is two-way. The song transforms people and people transform the song. Transformation is a key theme of Earworm. The entire cast gave fine performances under Morgan Moss Smith's direction. In addition to Cook, the cast members were Megan Wiegert as Sasha, Julia Bennett as Jory, Chris Jones as Trevor, Eleanor Humphrey as Kess, and Colleen Backer as Elise. The set and lighting were designed by Katie Palazzola and Cheyenne Groom, respectively. Sound designer Ted Drury and sound technician Philip Evans deserve notice for their work in a show where sound is crucial. This play has real potential. After some trimming and further development, especially in the character of Trevor, I'd be interested in seeing Earworm again. Mm. Well, uh, yeah, I've had some work. I've, I've found a little too much narration by the, the song, but I like, as you point out, that was an interesting way of making real the theories about uh, literary uh, existences of various works that, are, that have been written. So. I agree. If you're on Twitter and Instagram, you can find us there too. You can follow us on Twitter at Two on the Isle and be among the first to find out about our uploaded reviews to YouTube and any other special news that we have to announce. Plus, on Instagram, you can see some sneak peeks at the shows we've just gotten video for before the next episode when you follow us. Again, follow us on Twitter and Instagram by looking for Two on the Isle. Another of the new plays done by Tesseract Theatre Company in their 2019 Festival of New Plays is Dates by Elizabeth Breed Penny. The title is a little ironic because Caroline doesn't have dates. She doesn't leave her apartment. She's agoraphobic. She's divorced from a husband who abused her, pushed her down the stairs and caused her to have a miscarriage. But he still haunts her. She sees him in her apartment. If she goes out, she might run into him there. Her best friends, Tess and McKella, come to help her unpack the things she's brought from the house she sold. She meets Luke, the neighbor upstairs, a nice guy. She also puts herself on an online dating site. She gets responses, mostly not such nice guys when she rejects them. One threatens to rape and kill her, which brings back visits, hallucinatory, from her ex-husband and more time with her psychiatrist. As often happens, especially in dramas, plays, movies, TV shows, things get worse before they get better. She alienates her friends, who's sick by her. McKellen wants to fix her up with her cousin, Barry. Neighbor Luke is confused. One drunken, passionate night, and then what? But of course, Caroline is confused too. Somehow, and I didn't quite follow the details, she managed to get rid of her husband's haunting. I don't think it was just because I am a man, and this is in many ways a play about a woman and her life gone wrong, that I wanted more about the connections, especially with the husband. Why does he still exert such a hold on her? 
I'd like more context so I can put it together and stay with it. Jazz Tucker certainly made the ex-husband scary with intent looks and soft words that threatened. Director Tina Twardowski brought everyone into the apartment, the hallucinatory husband right next to Caroline, the man on the date site standing on the fringes of Katie Palazzola's sketchy apartment set. Hallie Robinson had an emotional and physical marathon as Caroline on stage almost all the time in a strenuous battle with herself. Rachel Garrett and Laurel Stevenson, as her friends Michaela and Tess, grew desperate at times while trying to find a way to help. Kevin Urday's Luke also had a rough ride, but hung on, maybe the steadiest person on the scene. Mike Wells played Michaela's cousin Barry, the prospective date. Robert Oberdeek and David Zimmerman played the guys on the dating website very convincingly. Dorothy Labounty was the gentle psychiatrist. Cheyenne Groom designed lights, Philip Evans the sound. Playwright Penny crafted her play well, but for me, it's a little hollow at the heart. I had a mixed feelings about it as well. Yeah, yeah. Another troubled woman takes center stage in the third offering in Tesseract's 2019 Festival of New Plays, Erin Lane's Hoist. Schuyler, an Afghanistan veteran in her early 30s, was brutally raped by a superior officer. He got a medal. She got no satisfaction and still can't get the Veterans Administration to grant her disability payments. She's separated from her ex-husband, who was with her in Afghanistan, but did not give her the support she felt he should have after the rape. Their child lives with him. Schuyler lives her bitterness while working in a basement bar in Chicago. Governor, an African-American Vietnam veteran in his 60s, manages the bar. It's Veterans Day 2008, but neither veteran is celebrating. Schuyler trades shots with her friend Bianca, single now, around 50, a regular and the only customer in the bar this morning. Leslie, a young woman looking for work, claims to be 21, but obviously isn't, and admits to being on the run from an unhappy home life. Schuyler hires her. She entertains Schuyler and Bianca with her seeming innocence, though that eventually gets called into question. A Marine in uniform walks into the bar. It's Simon in his 30s, Schuyler's ex. He's stationed in Chicago. He's come to the bar on a mission, two of them. Only one is successful. Playwright Aaron Lane's dialogue crackles. It's filled with F-bombs and MFs and other obscenities. They seem right in the mouths of these characters. The dialogue makes good theater. At the play's deepest moments, I wanted more from the language. Lane has constructed a play that sometimes deserves richer language. Director Kevin J. Bowman and his cast did well with the play they had. Rachel Bailey took Schuyler deep. Dana Wachtel's Bianca was putting up a good front as her light faded. Sherard Curry's governor has a confidence gained from long experience that made him almost admirable even at his worst. As young Leslie, McKaylin Padilla was innocent and eager and cute until she wasn't. Eric Kuhn gave Simon the ramrod bearing of a Marine with a quiet intensity, too quiet sometimes, and alert concern. K.D. Palazzolo designed the minimal set, Cheyenne groomed the lights, Philip Evans the sound, and John Everett choreographed the fight. In the play Hoist, the barflies hoist their shots and try to hoist their pain. Uh, yes, and perhaps hearing this play 
uh, spoken aloud will help the author give the language some of the additions that you want. One, one can hope. Let's take a look at the St. Louis area calendar for theater for June 2019. We'll start off with the dinner theaters. The Dinner Detective at the Hilton St. Louis Frontenac Murder Mystery Dinner Show runs through July 27th. Murder in Mayberry runs at the Lemp Mansion Comedy Mystery Dinner Theater through July 17th. Flaming Saddles at the Bissell Mansion Murder Mystery Dinner Theater runs through July 28th. The Marriage of Figaro plays at the Opera Theater of St. Louis through June 29th. Be More Chill is at New Line Theater through June 22nd. Charlie Johnson reads All of Proust at the Midnight Company through June 15th. Love's Labor's Lost by Shakespeare Festival St. Louis runs in Forest Park through June 23rd. The Boy from Oz plays at Stages St. Louis through June 30th. The Dixie Swim Club by the Monroe Actor Stage Company in Waterloo, Illinois runs through June 9th. Rigoletto at Opera Theater St. Louis plays through June 30th. Sylvia plays at Stray Dog Theater from June 6th through the 22nd. The Caper in Isle 6 plays at Circus Flora in Midtown St. Louis from June 6th through the 30th. Fat at Because Why Not Theater Company runs from June 6th through the 16th. Travels with My Aunt at Act Incorporated St. Charles plays from June 7th through the 23rd. An Evening of One Acts plays at Florissant Valley Community College from June 7th through the 9th. Elizabeth Kennedy, Summer Vacation of Song plays at The Presenter's Dolan on June 8th. The Coronation of Popea plays at Opera Theater St. Louis from June 9th through the 28th. Guys and Dolls will be at the Muni for its debut for the season from June 10th through the 16th. Next to Normal, the Thelonious Monk story will be put on by A Call to Conscious and Jazz St. Louis on June 12th and 13th. Lewis and Tolkien of Wardrobes and Rings plays at the Playhouse of Westport Plaza from June 13th through the 15th. Leaving Iowa at Act Incorporated St. Charles runs from June 14th through the 22nd. Fire Shut Up in My Bones plays at Opera Theater of St. Louis from June 15th through the 29th. Donna Weinstein and Shirley Asinger say yes at the presenter's Dolan on June 15th. A Mother Goose Comedy plays at Merrimack Community College from June 17th through the 19th. Disney's 101 Dalmatians will be at Stages St. Louis from June 18th through the 30th. Kinky Boots kicks off this season of the Muni in Forest Park from June 19th through the 25th. Open Mic Night will be at the Cabaret Project on June 19th. Indecent plays at Max and Louis Productions on June 20th all the way through the 30th. An Amazing Story, German Abolitionists of Missouri plays at Katana Productions on June 20th through the 23rd. Hedwig and the Angry Itch at the Q Collective from June 20th through the 29th. And Singing in the Rain will be at Looking Glass Playhouse in Lebanon, Illinois from June 20th through the 23rd. We'll be watching some of these productions from our Two Seats on the Aisle. And we'll be watching the mail and the email for your thoughts about theater in this program and for items for the calendar. Send them to Two on the Aisle, HEC Media, 3221 McKelvey Road, Bridgeton, Missouri, 63044, or by email to TOTA at HECTV.org. Join us next time on Cable and the Web for Circus, Opera, Wise Guys, and Dolls. We'll see you then. This episode of Two on the Isle was produced by Bob Wilcox, and the associate producer was Jerry Kowarski. HEC media producer is Paul Langdon. Our hosts this week were Jerry Kowarski and Bob Wilcox. Television director is Rick Rebelke. 
Segment editors and videography by Carrie Marks, Paul Langdon, Ben Smith, and Rod Milam. Audios by Paul Langdon. Associate producers and studio camera operators were Carrie Marks and Ben Smith. Set and lighting were by Paul Langdon, Carrie Marks, and Ben Smith. Our theme music was by Daniel McGowan. HEC technical support is by Jane Ballou. And HEC media assistant producer, social media broadcaster, podcast producer, and podcast host is Rod Milam. Two on the Isle was made possible with the support from the Regional Arts Commission of St. Louis. Don't forget you can find all things Two on the Isle online on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Just go to each social media platform, search for Two on the Isle, and like, subscribe, and follow us there. Thanks for downloading the Two on the Isle podcast. We'll see you next time. This is an HEC Media Podcast.